Welcome to Boca Live, Boca Raton Magazine's first and only podcast, where you'll hear all about what to do, where to go, the best eats, and more in South Florida. Each week, you'll hear from us, the editors of Boca Mag, while we chat with the who's who of Boca and beyond about everything from wacky Florida stories to the hottest chefs to the biggest events. We're here and we're Boca, live. I'm sitting down with John Lipscomb, a sales associate with Corcoran Group, and his wife, Adrienne, semi-retired from a career in pharmaceutical sales. After a 12-year courtship and a 10-year engagement, they were married two months ago on the beach across from where they now live in Ocean Ridge. Today, we are talking about their love story, which is a doozy. Let's start with your first weekend together. Your first weekend together was a death row at Potosi Correctional Institution in Missouri. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Your love story featured in Boca Magazine's February issue was the subject of the book you published, The Painting and the Piano. And not all of that is very pretty. First of all, you're an unlikely pair. John, you're from a prominent St. Louis society family. And Adrian, you were born addicted to heroin and removed from your parents as an infant. You both had rough childhoods. Adrian, can you start by describing what it was like growing up for you? Well, uh, I was raised on Long Island by my foster parents. However, to me, they were my parents. I didn't know they were my foster parents till I was six years old. My mom sat me down and explained to me that I had another mommy and daddy and that we were going to go and meet them in um, the city at the foster agency where I'd have my physicals. And she made it very positive and so I thought, great, you know, I'll have extra presents and, you know, I was little so I thought this is a good thing. However, as time went on, you know, their visits were to Long Island, either they wouldn't show at all or they were hours late. And, you know, as I got older, I began to realize like there were stark differences. Uh, and then, you know, at the age of nine, um, they wanted me back. And, um, and that's when the court battle started. And obviously, I did not want to go. Um, and, and during that time, the judge had ordered uh, weekend visits. So the, the differences between like this, you know, really beautiful, well-decorated home on Long Island to spending a weekend in Brooklyn with 10 cats and two dogs and chaos and filth and, and, and then constant screaming and, you know, just, um, you know, it couldn't be more different. Um, so that's just a... Specifically, what kind of abuse did you suffer as a child with your with your biological well, my parents? biological mother was physically and emotionally abusive you know she would you know tell me I was stupid and you know always put me down and there were several you know episodes that I remember of her 
you know, beating me with a hanger because my clothes fell off in the closet. And, um, and she only treated me like that. She didn't treat my biological sister like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I, you know, I don't know how I got through it. I talked to my mom every Thursday when I came home for lunch and she'd say, be strong. When you're 18, you'll come back to us. And so I guess, you know, I had good roots and I had that hope. John, what about you? When I interviewed for, Bo for you for Boca Magazine, you mentioned that you and Adrian were in many ways on parallel tracks when it comes to this stuff. Can you elaborate on that and, and how your childhood was? Sure, well, I was, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri and I was born into a pretty affluent family. And uh, from the outside, everything looked great. And, but on the inside, it was complete chaos. My mother was alcoholic. And I was really raised by my dad and a nanny, and her name was Lizzie. And um, when I was nine years old, uh, my parents approached me and told me they were getting divorced. And um, shortly after that, my mother was sent away to, um, to rehab in Baltimore, Maryland, and she was there for five years until I was 14 years old. So we lived with my father and our nanny, Lizzie, and we had a great life. Um, you know, country clubs, private schools, great friends. But when my mom came back, it was a complete disaster. And just like in Adrian's case, this is where the parallels start, is my mother wanted us back. I have a sister and I have a brother, and so we had a big custody battle. And because I was 14, I was able to choose. The judge allowed me to choose um, where I wanted to live, and I chose to live with my father and my brother and sister were forced to live with my mother because they were three years and six years younger, respectfully. Um, and that's where the parallels are. Um, Adrian's case, custody case, was much more publicized. It was carried by the national news, but ours was a big case in St. Louis, Missouri, although very private. Um, and the other parallels, my mother was addicted to alcohol and Adrian's mother was a heroin addict. Both of our mothers died when they were 47. And so when we got together, we started seeing all these parallels that we had gone through, and um, we actually became our mothers. Um, Adrian became a, a drug addict, and I became an alcoholic, and uh, and we met in recovery. And so there I are a lot of parallels. I was going to ask you mm -hmm. how you met, um, and what exactly brought you both to seek help at that time? Well, for me. Uh, I had gotten addicted to pain pills after sur you know, many sur surgeries, although the last surgery, it was just, you know, it was a perfect storm. I, you know, I was in a bad marriage and I remember uh, the fighting was c constant. We were back in therapy and I, I remember the moment when I consciously decided to take a pill to change the way I felt, not because I was in pain. I remember crossing that line. And then um, my youngest daughter, uh, we had a situation where uh, I had to take her to the ER and prior to that I stopped at home to get my pain pills and she was crying in the back seat. And just the fact that I even had to take five minutes to go home because I knew I would probably be there for hours that I might get sick. And she was diagnosed with a chronic illness, however, at the 
time that day, they told me she might have lymphoma. So the whole thing was really upsetting and it was kind of my bottom. I realized, you know what, I'm in a terrible marriage. I, my daughter is sick. How can I take care of her if I can't take care of myself? So I like to say I blew the whistle on myself. I went to a counselor who told me where to go to get help and I shortly after that went out to California to rehab and was out there for 90 days. And uh, when I came back, uh, I realized there was a meeting right next to my house that met at 7 a.m. and out in California we used to go to a 6.30 a.m. meeting and so I was used to doing that every day so I thought this is great I'm just gonna go to this meeting right next door and the first day I walked into the meeting I saw John and he said you look really familiar and I said well you put in a couple of dog fences for me, and that was uh, his business. That was his invisible uh, dog yeah, fences, yeah. Yes, right? yes, for a company called Dog Watch, and so um, so that was kind of the start of it. And actually, you know, really early on, he was just, you know, a really good friend, and kind of warned me, you know about who to stay away from and you know you know who were good people in the program and that could you know help me and was really like a mentor to me in early sobriety that's because John had been there for a while yeah he um, had seven years been, yeah yeah what whatever got you into the program what what was your bottom when my mother returned when I was 14 15 years old and I always drank differently than my friends and when I drank I drank to get drunk or to black out and to kill the pain so I drank heavily from 15 to age 40 so 25 years and um, when I started in my teens it was kind of the weekend you know high school type of deal and then college it was more frequent and the disease does progress and I progressed very quickly um, so when I was approaching 40 when I was 39 about a year before I actually got sober I noticed that I was drinking differently even though I've been warned about it for years and years and years but I started drinking early in the morning at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning because I had to stop the shakes. Um, I had the shakes so bad so I was on a maintenance program and I would drink throughout the day and I, then I go, uh oh, I might have a real problem. That's when I started noticing it and then um, close to Christmas time, it was my 40th birthday and um, started drinking around the clock, literally around the clock. I'd wake up, I'd drink for two hours and pass out, drink for two hours and pass out. That went on for about three weeks and I quit eating at that point too. And so I was close to death when I went into rehab. Um, the night before I went in, I made a call to my ex-girlfriend and basically to yell at my ex-girlfriend for some reason and her mother um, answered the phone and she said, if I can get an appointment for you will you check into the hospital tomorrow and for whatever reason I agreed to do it where I'd never agreed to it before and so that was kind of my God moment and um, if she didn't answer the phone or she had been out and nobody answered the phone I kind of doubt I would be here today and I'm not trying to be dramatic it was just the case so I went and I checked to see if I was an alcoholic the next day and there's a John Hopkins 20 question test and I got a hundred on the test <laughs> and um, 
So that would start, and I went into detox for five days, and that was my bottom. And when I checked in, the doctor looked at me and said, asked me who my primary care physician was because he was scared to death I was going to have a heart attack or um, a stroke right there on his table. Um, you know, my eyes were yellowed. My skin was yellowing. I had a mountain of problems legal. I had three DWIs. I, you know, the IRS I hadn't paid. Uh, my house was close to foreclosure. My business was close to foreclosure. It, it, I was at the very end and looking over the edge, and um, that's when I went into detox. And, and there was nobody in your family who was blowing the whistle on you, or you weren't listening? Addicts tend to isolate, and I was a good isolator. And so I, they were aware there was always an issue with me, but they didn't know the extent to it. And um, so we closed the door and shut the world out. By the time I checked in, I had very few friends left. My family was gone. I chased everybody away who wanted to be close to me. and. Um, luckily, um, everybody's back in my life today. My family is, and my friends are, and, um, and many more. Um, but uh, nobody at that point knew how bad it actually was. So this is an, an unlikely love story. Two people who didn't know how to love themselves meet in rehab. When did this friendship in rehab start turning into something more serious? This is getting to be <laughs> the happy part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, well, first of all, it was a daily meeting, so I went every day, and John was there every day, and uh, I don't know, like, at some point, you know, I called my sponsor every day, and at some point she, uh, she had said, you know, if you can't get a hold of me, call John, and, and so that's what I did, and um, he used to like make his calls for work, or you know, around five o'clock at night. And so, you know, I just called him like I called my sponsor, and and just you know, our friendship developed, and um, we were just really good friends. And uh, and then after several months, I remember like I several people came over to help me like clean out my garage and then he st stayed longer and you know we talked and talked and it was just easy and um i just remember when he left he like kissed me on my forehead and i like literally had a tingle and i was like what's that um i didn't think i you know it really just caught me off off guard off guard and um, I, you know, he used to say, he would call me and say, I love you. And I remember saying later on, like, was that, um, people in the program tend to say, I love you. And I said, was that a, a program, I love you, or an I love you, I love you. And he goes, no, I, I was falling in love with you. It was really you know? sweet. How did you know that you were falling in love? What was well, this changing. Well, you know, neither one of us were, were looking for this. We were both in situations and in marriages and, um, and, and not good marriages. So we weren't looking for this. And we always like to say that we call it the stare. Uh -huh. And I always say she stared at me. And she goes, no, you were staring at me. And so um, there was just a change. I listened to Adrian when she came in the program. So Adrian just had 12 years. Mm -hmm. And I just had 19 years um, in January. Are you talking about sobriety? Sobriety, sobriety. yeah. Sobriety. And... Um, so when Adrian first came in, um, she sounded different than most newcomers to AA. And I couldn't figure out why. And then finally one day she said that I came here through Al-Anon. 
And so she had Al-Anon, a background in Al-Anon, and then she came to AA. So she understood the program very well, and she, she sounded different than everybody else in the program, and I in liked... In what way? She understood. She understood people. She understood the program and how it worked, and, you know, the sponsorship and the steps, you know, the 12 steps. She'd been through the steps, and, um, and just, you know, people who go to Al-Anon understand people who are in AA, and vice versa. It, it really does work well together. So when she came into AA, we call it coming through the back door when you come through <laughs> Al-Anon into AA, um, she had a good understanding of what AA was all about. And, um, and you can tell when people understand the program. You know, only 5 to 10% of the people stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a pretty low percentage. And you, could tell, and you can tell when people get it and they sound different and Adrian sounded different. And so I perked right up when I heard her talking in the meetings. And uh, so we just pursued it from there. Yeah. Just well, you can also tell, you know, now that I've been in the program a while, you get a sense of people who really want it you know, really want to stay sober and, you know, I, we call it the gift of desperation and, you know, I had too much to lose. I had three girls and, um, you know, I had to be there for them and I, you know, I, you know, and then I found out my ex was having an affair and there was a divorce. So, you know, I needed to be strong and I needed to get well for them. And, and we saw a future in us because both of us in our lives have been through so much right. that nothing could really bother us together anymore. I mean, nothing could have hurt us because we both have been to get through so, so much. So we saw life together and a future together that basically we could take on the world now that, you know, we had our sobriety and we had each other and we'd been through a parallel universe, you know. And so, um, so it's just, it worked. It worked very when well. you strip away the program and the bad childhood and all of that, why else did you fall in love with each other? If you were going to send a smushy Valentine's <laughs> Day message, what did you like about each other? Aside from the fact that you were both survivors. Well, for me, it's, it's pretty easy. I, I can be myself, my quirky self. She accepts me for, accepts me for my quirks and my goofiness. And, uh, and I can be me, and I don't have to change one iota. And, um, and, and I appreciate that. And so for me, it's super easy. I don't know. I just... I mean, I really fell madly in love. He's kind, he's, um, he's very kind, he's generous, he's considerate, and, and not just, you know, to me and the girls, but to people in general, you know. He goes out of his way to help people, and they, they were just all qualities that, you know, I was really attracted to, and, and, um, you know, we, and we have a mutual interest in helping people, and yeah. we sponsor people, and we reach out to people, and, and that's attractive quality that Adrian has. And so you have sort of a, a partnership yes. above and beyond. You know, it's just not the Hollywood falling in love No, I mean, it's, it's something, and it's grown. I think feel like we've grown together, and especially since writing the book, um, we've, you know, we've learned how to work together, and um, I, I, I don't know, I just think we continue to grow together, and, you know, and we respect one another, and that's so important. What challenges did you face from the outset um, in overcoming a lot of the baggage 
And how did you deal with the challenges? You, I know you took things very slowly. Right. And we're going to talk about the book you wrote in a little bit. But tell me how you overcame being the people you were to make this relationship work. Well, for me, probably the biggest thing was um, Adrian came with three children, three girls, and a, a crazy ex-husband. <laughs> and so that was a lot to overcome. And, and also, I had been through numerous relationships, and honestly, I was tired of going through relationships. I wanted this to stick. I wanted this to be the last relationship. I didn't want to hurt anybody else in my life. In my case, Adrian came with um, three girls, teenage girls at that, and, um, and a crazy ex-husband. And I'd been through numerous relationships, and um, I wanted this to be the last relationship. I was madly in love with Adrian, and I needed to know how to handle these, these, you know, the three girls and the crazy ex-husband. So I actually sought outside counseling. I went to therapist for a year, a relationship expert, to get me through this. And um, and it was very successful. When I first started seeing him, he cut me down to, you know, a gnat, to absolutely nothing, and you know, said that. You know, you're a liar, you're an adulterer, you're, you know, you're everything under the sun. And I was pretty upset about that. But over the year, he slowly built me up and built me up and taught me how to be in a relationship and taught me to be honest and um, so that I could deal with Adrian and deal with the girls. Um, the girls were a big challenge. Teenage girls are always a challenge. <laughs> and um, I always like to say, you know, I would, I'd like to wake up and perform exorcism on them every morning, you know. So... Um, but I learned which each one liked. The oldest one liked to shop, so we go shopping. The middle one liked to cook, so I enjoy cooking. And the youngest one likes rock and roll, so we went to concerts together. And we have a very special relationship, all three of us, and I do. And um, it's not a, you know, the blended family did work in our case, and we're very, very close today, and I love those girls. And the ex-husband is the ex-husband, and we just have to work around that, and that's just part of the challenges of being, you know, in a divorced family situation. And uh, But the therapy really helped a lot. and. And because of, you know, AA, you know, I learned to reach out and ask other people for help, which is unusual for me. I always used to like to take on the world on my back with terrible results. And so I asked for help, and he got me through it. After a year, I was able to let him go, and we continued on our relationship. So. I'm wondering, how do you know when you have these kind of addictions that you finally licked it? Or is it a lifelong process? I mean, do you, is there one day where you just sort of know that it's over? No, it's a lifelong process. That's why um, people in recovery continue to go to AA meetings. I mean, they should. I mean, people, it's funny. My friends who know nothing about recovery are, are like, why do you still go to those meetings? And um, it's you know it, it it helps us to stay sober. To, it's more to how to live life. Um, I mean, I I have this. I have a um, a sponsee right now, and it's funny. You know, you could be at a meeting, and one minute someone will share something, and you're crying, and then the next minute you're just laughing hysterically because someone tells a funny story. And um, I, I always lean over to her and say, all for a buck. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just a new way to live life. And it's important to just, especially for me, to stay connected um, with my friends in sobriety.
but I like having friends that you know aren't in recovery as well. Yeah, I think um, you know AA gives us so much. We don't think like normal people. Addicts don't think like normal people, and um, everybody in that room kind of thinks like us. And I kind of think it's like you know on the movie Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the the island of misfits. We're all a bunch of misfits. We're on one <laughs> island, and together we're really a powerful group. But separate, we're we're lost individuals. So we come to the meetings and we learn how to live and learn how to live differently. It's like a living room or a family, like everybody's coming down to breakfast to talk about their problems and their issues and, and learn from other people how to live and, and you know how to deal with situations um, which they, we didn't know how to deal with before. And it's, it's a way of learning, it's a different way of learning. We have to re, relearn the right way how to you know, approach situations which we found difficult before. So, um, and it's a social life, you know, not, I say half my friends are in the program, the other yeah. half aren't, but it's a, you know, we do everything together. You know, we go to movies and we go to concerts and we go to sporting events and parties. And um, so it's, it's a great way of life. And I could go anywhere in the world and I have immediate friends yeah. because I can go to a meeting anywhere in the world and it's amazing. Wow, that's a, some story. Tell me now, um, on a happier note from the past, how um, John proposed to you, Adrian? Um, well, it was Valentine's Day, and uh, I was at home, and uh, I don't know, about early in the morning, I got um, flowers were delivered, and they were from him, and then an hour later, more flowers were delivered, and this proceeded to go on all day. Um, it just so happened to be that his, one of his sponsees in the program owned a florist. So I mean, it was like four or five o'clock and he came again and I said, is this it? Because I need to get in the shower. We're going out to dinner tonight. So um, by then, you know, I had a feeling something was up and uh, I was actually sitting on the bed watching Oprah and he came in and got on one knee. He was going to propose at dinner but he couldn't wait any longer. So, and I said yes. That <laughs> <laughs> I gathered. So how many dozens of roses did you have delivered that day, John? I think it was about five or six dozen, oh something God, like that. And I, when How I actually came in, I, yeah, exactly. I think I came in. I go, oh, this is my last, the last rose from the shop. And so, yeah. um, John, my sponsee, played along very well with it, and uh, it was fun. Wow, That's sweet. Well, let's talk about the book. Why did you decide to write this book? Um. Well, John had just sold his business and people had told us for years, you know, you should write a book. You have a lot of parallels in your stories. They thought our stories were pretty amazing. And um, so we were on vacation and he said maybe we should look into that book uh, that everyone's told us to write. and. Uh, we had no idea how to write a book, but um, we started doing research, and uh, John likes to tell this story, so I don't know. Yeah, we were, it was right after I sold my business, and, um, and we knew nothing about writing a book, like Adrian said, and so we started reaching out, and we started talking to people about how you go about writing a book, and my English teacher ac actually was vacationing where we vacation, 
I go, I got an idea. Let's talk to my old English teacher from high school. He should certainly know how to write a book. So we went and had lunch at this very nice club. And I go, Mr. Whittemore, you know, I want to write a book. And he goes, well, that's nice, John. And I go, well, can you help me? And I had my pencil and paper out in front of me. And he goes, I know absolutely nothing about writing a book. And I go, <laughs> uh-oh, we are in trouble. So um, we already had the title, The Painting and the Piano. Um, and we started reaching out and asking for help. And we knew the stories and the parallels. And one of the big reasons why we wrote the book is that it was to help people. Um, you know, it, it was great for us and cathartic for us, but it was really to reach out to people and to help people, and, and the results have been amazing. And, um, but we had to learn how to write, and then we had to learn to publish because we self-published. And um, about oh, nine months ago, we were speaking at a, a book club, and um, we were approached by HCI Publishing, who published Chicken Soup for the Soul, and they signed us to contracts. So now we're under a publisher, We've won four awards, most of them for inspiration so far, and we've been runners-up in a number of other um, book festivals. Um, so we, we've come a long way. We've been on TV and radio and podcasts and magazines and newspapers, and a screenplay has been written, and possibly a movie is in the offing at some point. Um, so it's come a long way, but the most importantly is we've helped a lot of people. We get the texts, we get the emails, we get the calls. And it's what we started out to do. It's like it, we're not trying to get rich and famous off this. All we really want to do is help people. And by telling our story, it, it helps people. And Why do you think people like your story so much? Because you overcame odds or? Well, I mean, it's definitely a triumph over tragedy. I know when we speak to large groups and, and our audience is mostly women, you know, they're really are upset about my story. Um, they have a, you know, a really hard time understanding the judicial system and a judge ordering me back to my biological parents. You know, they were supposedly rehabilitated on methadone programs, but you know, they weren't rehabilitated and they really weren't capable of, you know, raising two girls. So, um, and my story was highly publicized. So I think, um, and then it's so relevant to what's going on today with the opiate epidemic. When we speak, we you know, have crowds of people come up to us to sign their books, but then they have some really sad stories. And you know, if they don't have a child um, who's you know struggling with an opiate addiction or a grandchild? Some of them have lost, you know, children to death. Um, I mean, it's so I think it touches people in so many ways, and it's really relevant to what's happening today. Do you want to add to that? Yeah. Well, so we came out the other side. We went through the wars, and we yeah. came out the other side, and. Um, and the people who approach us, they're lost and confused and they don't understand addiction and they don't understand the foster care system. And, and we've been through it and we look like normal people or appear as normal people. And we obviously went through and came out the other side. So, so what did we do to get there? And, and we share our story and, um, and people are intrigued by it. I mean, everywhere we go, they, yeah. you know, we can stay for hours answering questions. And um, What about the title, The Painting and the Piano? What does that mean? Uh -uh. Well, the painting, the piano, mm -hmm. um, the painting was Adrian's mother painted and it hung in our front foyer and it has very good memories for Adrian. The piano was my mother's and it sat in our living room. And for me, it doesn't have great memories. And so when Adrian moved in with her three girls, Adrian said, well, what's that down in the basement? I go, well, that's a piano. 
and the piano had been wrapped up in packing um, pads and on a skid for, gosh, 45 years, ever since I was nine years old. And it moved with me and moved with me down to Texas, to a couple homes, back to St. Louis. And I came home from work one day and Adrian had some workmen set it up and I turned the corner and all of a sudden I see the piano and on the side of the piano is this gold etching. And you can't forget the etching and it came rushing back to me. So my memories went flooding back to, you know, 40 years previously when we were in that living room and they weren't great memories, you know, the, the alcoholism, the Christmas tree being knocked over, the cigarette burns in the carpet, being told that my parents were getting divorced. At the same time, we hung the painting in the foyer and Adrian came down the stairs and saw the painting and she was smiling and glowing. And you could tell she remembered those great memories of her mother. And I was looking up at her when she was coming down the stairs and I go, you know, if we ever write the book that everybody says we should write, we should call it The Painting and the Piano. That just stuck. We didn't write the book for, what, five years or something yeah. after that. We just had the title and didn't do anything with it. So when we actually wrote the book, I go, well, we got the title, so we have the starting spot. Well, is that piano still there, or does it still bother you? Uh -huh. uh, no, the piano is uh, up in St. Louis somewhere. Uh -huh. uh, it, it uh -huh. is not traveling anymore. And um, but I didn't realize that a piano was supposed to actually be put up. I thought it was just going to follow me to my grave, all packed up. Mm -hmm. The painting does exist. We still have the we have the painting down here with us. What about blowback? I always wondered when people write raw memoirs of their lives. Did your family get angry? Did you get a lot of um, bad? Re did you get any kind of bad reaction from the people that you wrote about? I, it was pretty mixed. Um, my biological sister was not happy with the book, but that didn't surprise me. You know, she um, lives in upstate New York, and you know, she really hasn't even told some friends that our biological mother was a heroin addict. So. She has a lot of secrets, so she didn't care for the book. And, um, you know, my girls had like mixed reviews on it, but you know, that was a few years ago, and even now today, you know, they're much more open-minded about it. And, um, and so I don't know, for the most part, I think everyone's been pretty supportive. Yeah, when we were talking to people um, most people were very positive and said, you should write the book. And one friend of my family's was a Time magazine correspondent for 30 years. And I talked to him and he said, I, I discourage you from writing the book. And that's the first time we had heard that. And we go, oh, no. And he goes, because you have a very personal family, very private family. Mm -hmm. And then with the, if you all start getting big, this is going to get out and it could hurt your family. So Adrian and I had to stop everything. And we talked for about two or three hours to go, if we write this book, this could happen and we both said you know we want to help people if we're going to do this we're going to be 100% honest so if you see in the book we, we really put it out there and, and we don't look great in the book I mean so um, we put our lives out there to help other people and there was some blowback um, I don't think my father was excited about you know cleaning our laundry out in the open but he's very supportive of the book um, my sister I don't think has read the book today uh, my brother read it and he support everybody's supportive but I think they wish that we didn't say anything. But it's helped so many people. They see today what we've done for people, yeah. and they're very encouraging about that. And they're very, um, they're, they're appreciative of what we're doing for other people, and we're helping a lot of people. So, um, so we did get some blowback, and we knew we would. And but it hasn't been severe. Okay, speaking of helping people, <laughs> let's go back to that uh, that first weekend away. <laughs> what a romantic idea, <laughs> Jeff. <Rowe. laughs> Why on earth did you spend your first weekend away as a couple in death row? 
Well, I don't really know. He had, you know, done it don't before. Blame it on me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, sure, I'll tag along for the ride, but. I'll so I was you. I was involved in a program called REC, which stands for Residence Encounter Christ. And you go into prisons um, for the weekend for three days, and you work with the prisoners. And just so happened, gosh, I don't know, it was three or four months after we started dating, maybe maybe longer, six months after we started dating, it was in the springtime. And the last wreck that I did, it took place on death row in Potosi, Missouri. And so Adrian came along, and she was like a deer in headlights. I mean, this is maximum security as maximum security gets prison and with the airlocks and the whole nine yards. And so that was our weekend, our first weekend away, and she came to share that experience with me. And it was a powerful, powerful experience. And so, um, and that was our first weekend out of St. Louis, our yeah. first weekend we had alone together without the girls. And um, so it was, it was quite a time. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was well, intense. finally, then, I, I've got to ask you this. I don't know, this is a hard question to sum up, but. How are your lives now compared to how they were maybe 20 years ago? What have you learned? Oh, wow. When you look at way back compared to now, what's well, it feel like? What feels different? Well, it feels calm and serene, which I didn't have for many, many years. Um, I love my life today. I love, well, it doesn't hurt that we live on the ocean. And, you know, John is, he's my best friend and soulmate. And I think that we just really enjoy life together. We like similar things. Um, sharing recovery helps because we speak our own language and um, I don't know it's just you know 20 years ago I was miserable um, I was in a very bad marriage someone that was very controlling and I lived in a lot of fear and I don't have that today I know that if I decide to go shopping on Atlantic Avenue and I lose track of time, I'm not going to get yelled at because I didn't have my phone with me. And that's what life was like for me prior to meeting John. So it's a very calm, normal life. Yeah, I, all of that and you know, 20 years ago for me, I, I, it seems almost like a nightmare or a different person. Yeah. I, I'm not even close to the same person I was. I was self-centered and egotistical and you know I remember last few months I was driving somewhere and um, go god I got the best life of anybody on the planet and my life was absolutely a disaster it couldn't have gotten much worse <laughs> and today I, don't, I just don't think the same way I'm not the same person hopefully I'm somewhat humble and serene and I help people I don't hurt people anymore um, I, I don't even recognize the person that I used to be and um, you know, our life is very quiet. We adore each other. Um, you know, just being home and alone is a special time. I'd rather be alone <laughs> with Adrian than do anything else in the whole wide world. I don't need all the, you know, the lights and chandeliers and parades and all the stuff that I required before. It's just a, it's a very nice, quiet life. And so. Well, congratulations mm -hmm. on, on this Valentine's Day. It's got to be special for you. 
Yes. How many years since you were engaged on Valentine's Day? Would it be? I think 10 years. 10? Yeah, I think, is that yeah, right? 10 or 11. 10 yeah. or 11. Yeah. And you're coming on a big, what, three months of, of being married? <laughs> yes. Just December 26th. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank, thank you, you so much for speaking with Boca Raton Magazine. Oh, thank well, thank you. you. Thank you very much. much. Catch up with um, John and Adrian. Please check out our February issue. It's got their love story and two others that'll change your life. Thank you. You can subscribe to Boca Live through the Apple Store and listen to episodes online at bocamag.com.